into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. everyone welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh and not to be confused with the bottomless pit because you know what they say when you fall into a bottomless pit you die of dehydration but here at the theology pit we're going to keep you well hydrated this is a pit of theology which means that it's a pit that you can see it's a pit that you can be a part of it's a pit that you can notice but you don't have to get into it But if you do decide to get into it, it is bottomless. It is endless. There is so much to explore in theology. Theology as a whole is the study of God. And it's enough that even even a child can understand the basics of theology. But a theologian can just, you know, drown themselves in the ocean of information. It's quite an interesting uh, study. Its theology is called the queen of the sciences uh, for you know, for very good reason. Um, you have to understand uh, philosophy in order to do theology. Well, I shouldn't say you have to understand it. I would say that everybody is naturally a theologian. If you have an opinion about God, if you have an opinion about the way things are around you and what exactly God is, that is theology. And people write books about theology. People write books against theology. Uh, Some of my favorite books are people who write books and and favorite sayings are people who write against philosophy, not even realizing that they're doing philosophy by writing against it, which means that if they're right, you know, that philosophy is worthless, well, then what they've just written is worthless. But if philosophy isn't worthless, then what they just said is worthless. Um, It's kind of funny. It's a uh, uh, philosophical uh, concept called the law of non-contradiction that a positive A and negative A cannot exist at the same time in the same place. <clears throat> so I'm of course your host Samson Kovach and we have been going through a lot of theology in the theology pit. Um, we're spending time on the Bible in this series and um, we're, we're going to be talking about um, the Gnostic Gospels, some of the Gnostic Gospels here. Um, last week we spent a lot of time on the infancy narrative um, of, of Jesus, um, uh, mostly on the Proto-Evangelium of James, because it said that that was you know, the earliest ones. Well, a lot of people accuse the Bible of being you know, a rehashing of old stories, and it's just being changed and told and changed and told. And I wanted to show that with the Gnostic Gospels, that's actually what you get. But with the Gospels that we have, that's not what you get. So now we're going to talk. Sorry, I cut myself off there. I wasn't watching the time. We're now going to talk about the gospel of pseudo-Matthew. Now, it's called pseudo-Matthew, which means false Matthew, fake Matthew. And what's interesting about it is... If people say, okay, you know, I mean, we're kind of in the topic of what books belong in the New Testament and, you know, why didn't they choose other books, you know, and there, there's a certain criteria and we haven't gone over the criteria that they used yet, but, um, yeah, one of the reasons why I think people kind of have this question about the Gnostic Gospels is because they've never read them. And so that's what we're doing here in this theology pit. We're going through them and reading and we're looking at the content of what they, you know, have to say. And I think that, you know, once you start looking at these and getting an understanding of their content and how 
just vastly different they are from the New Testament. Um, you can get an understanding of why they weren't accepted. Number one, um, you know, and, th- and this is one of the reasons why, you know, uh, one of the criteria is that it's not written um, by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. Okay, that's one of the reasons why it was rejected. Another reason why they're rejected, um, besides that, is that they are um, written at a later date. Okay, they're not written in the first century, or you know, I'll give I'll give you late second century. You know, if you really want to push um, the Book of Revelation into the you know early second century, but it's you know late first century. Also, um, where you have these um, these gospels, these Gnostic writings, and they were obviously written hundreds of years after the fact. And the way that we know that is because of um, some of the dogmas and some of the opinions that people had of this time period in theology. There, when whenever they're doing theology, and you look at other writings, and you look at what is being said at the time. Um, it, it, these concepts and these ideas and these um, dogmas that are being pushed very hard are found in writings that they claim to be older. And that that doesn't make sense. It's anachronistic. Um, what's coming later, they're trying to impose into earlier uh Additions and saying no that see this is what it's always been this is how people thought this is how people talked and one of these places is in Mariology the study of Mary and okay, here's here's kind of an example away from this that we could talk about real quick to to give you an idea um, not necessarily how it's pushed back into it but how you could see that it could be okay um, for example. Whenever the um, the uh, what were known as the the Anglicans, the Anglos, the Anglo-Saxon people, whenever Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the Great, in the fifth century, um, wanted to uh, evangelize to them, and sent um, I believe it was Saint Augustine uh, to them. One of the things that they really, really stressed was. You know, that he, they told them, you know, whenever they're converted, they must keep the proper date of Easter. Okay, now we sit here and think, well, what's what's the big deal about that? But you know, the Eastern Church and the Western Church does have Easter on different days. Um, you know, they're separated, and it's because um, Pope Gregory changed the calendar based on how um, the sunlight was coming into the cathedral, so that you know Easter would relatively be at the same time every year following a, a, a certain path and it's how we get a liturgical year. This is why we have what's called the Gregorian calendar. And this is um, a, a really big deal at that time. You know, it's it's not a big deal to us. And in the grand scheme of things, it really isn't a, a big deal. But for them, yeah, that is a huge deal. So if you ever find writings that, boy, when they're talking about Easter, it, it seems like they are really overcompensating for the time of Easter. And they are really, you know, pushing that. You can sort of date that just looking at that internal evidence saying, okay, obviously this was written around this time because of the, you know, great importance that they have of the dating here. 
so let's say that they, you know, you, you found the book and it claimed to be written in the first century. And it was really going out of its way to make the point of Easter following a Gregorian calendar. You would read that and say, you know, you know what? Uh, the, I mean, uh, don't think thou protest too much. Uh, the fact that it's it's really writing this and stressing this, and then each one, each book that you read that's talking about, you know, making reference to Easter, we should say, and let's say that there's like, you know, I don't know, like twenty five of these books or something, and each book is retelling the same story sort of but it's you know embellishing it's taking a little bit from here and it's embellishing a little bit more but the common theme is you know that it has in it is this whole easter thing this whole easter dating but this easter dating it they just it it just seems like as you're going on they're giving more evidence and more evidence and more evidence and, and pretty soon it's like you know everybody believes that easter was here like you know by the time you get to the last book well when we're reading these Gnostic Gospels, that's what you're getting. You're getting these uh, second, third, fourth century dogmas and ideas that are evolving, but making its way in and showing that. So it would be like, um, you know, uh, us taking a work and it just evolving over time, but us attributing it to the first century, the original authors. Now, that's what people think. That the gospel writers did, or at least what those who claim to be the gospel writers did. You know, when when somebody says, well, you're picking up the gospel of, you know, Luke or something or, or Mark. Well, that's just a translation of a translation and it's been added to and taken away from so many times you don't even know what the original is. You know, when that's not true, because, you know, we talked about all of our manuscript evidence and we can actually go back and we can date it and it it doesn't it doesn't vary. It doesn't have, you know, entire like sections that have been rewritten throughout the entire thing. I mean, we talked about like some of the what we consider here in a theology pit and what some scholars think would be considered the biggest problem. And that's like, you know, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, it would probably be like the biggest section in there. Um you know, the uh the long ending of Mark, which I, I would say is probably more famous for people knowing that it shouldn't be in your in your Bible in the Gospel of Mark, the um, you know chapter sixteen verses nine through twenty one, I believe it is, you know that that shouldn't be in your Bible. It's just a later edition, and I think more people know that than they know that you know woman caught in the act of adultery and and uh, John uh, chapter seven verse fifty eight that goes into chapter eight. I think I got those numbers right, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but more people don't know that that should be in there. Same thing with the liturgical edition of uh, the Lord's Prayer for at, at the end where it says, for that is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, that, that being an addition. And those are like the big like changes, the big ones, like those, you know, couple ones there, you know, the ones that we went over. And those seem really, really minor compared to what we're going to be talking about today when we talk about the Gnostic Gospels. As I go through the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, if you, you know, just listen to the, um, the when I talked about the Proto-Evangelium of James, the last theology pit, you're going to hear, well, these are similar stories. And I always thought that it would be really, really interesting to almost have a, um, like a parallel reading um, of all of these, uh, you know, I'd say maybe like four of them, you know, five of them, uh, but there are so many of them, you know, in a way, so you could, you know, look at all of them next to each other 
and look at you know, the stories that they're telling, the length of both of them, how you know the later ones are getting longer and longer. They're getting more and more embellished, all the different changes in it. And all of these put together are what is going to make up, and we're not even going to get to this today, and I can guarantee that, the, the Gospel of Thomas that everybody is you know, so familiar with that that's like uh, the big one from like the Da Vinci Code and, you know, the Nag Hammadi Library and, you know, and it is so polluted with um, Stoic philosophy, Platonic thought, Gnostic ideas. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable, but it's all found in, um, you know, in all of these earlier works that it's just used and embellished and it was put together at a certain time because um, the Quran makes reference to them but the Quran's making reference to parts of them uh, specifically you know infancy narrative stuff that is found in these these earlier things that have been rejected the entire time in the church nobody believed this stuff and you know as we're going through you know you're seeing why I mean we, we talked about a lot of that you know, because of the the push that they were making with Mary being ever virgin. I mean, what happened when somebody doubted that? You know, as we learned from the Proto Evangelium of James, what happened was, you know, um, I think it was Salome. You know, wanted to be the OBGYN there, and she refused to believe, and she checked Mary by you know thrusting her fingers inside her to make sure that she still had a hymen, and her hand started you know burning off as though it was you know on fire, and she was in great pain and wailing and screaming, and it's pushing the narrative of Mary being ever virgin, that this is what happens when you try to violate, you know, even for, you know, good reason, even for proof, even for like anything. And this is why she was ever virgin. Also pushing the narrative that Joseph was older. Now, again, I've stated that, you know, I have no reason to think that she wasn't an ever virgin, but, um, it, it doesn't make or break my theology if, you know, Mary wasn't a virgin, you know, after she had Christ, after the virgin birth. If Joseph was a younger man, if they had other children together, that doesn't bother me. I just hold to that. No, like they never did. Okay. And, and there, you know, are other reasons uh, for that. But um, historically, that's what's been held. John Calvin held to it. Martin Luther held to it. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, holds to it. Um yeah, there, there other uh, other people do, and so I'm historically I'm standing with you know good people on the matter. But you know what? It's not something that I would break fellowship over. It's not something I'll fight and die on. Um, you know, if if you disagree with me and that she was a, uh, a yeah, she did have other children and stuff. You can send me all the information you want. I guarantee I've looked at it and I can argue for it and I can defend that position, but I can also argue for and defend the opposing position. And I think that if, if this is really a big deal to you, then you should know both sides of the argument and why, um, you know, you disagree with that. But this was a dogma of the church because, uh, Mary was held in such high esteem, um, you could see that in all these early workings, the way that, you know, it's uh, her, the understanding of Mary's role is evolving and how she's getting, you know, elevated. And we talked about, uh, I think, I believe we talked about the concept of veneration before that, um, you know, veneration is, is uh, given to the saints, uh, which is called dulia. Uh, Mary is hyperdulia. 
um, which means that you know she has a unique position to be venerated. But um, Latria is worship, and that is only uh, for God, and that is only for Christ. That is not for anybody else. But the problem comes when people don't know the difference between that and, you know, you don't know the difference between Dulia, Hyperdulia, and um, Latria. And, uh, you know, people will worship Mary. And even good Catholic apologists, I've heard Dr. Scott Hahn say, you know, if you are praying to the saints as a means to God, you know, instead of through Christ, you need to stop that because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what veneration means. And, there is a you know a certain understanding to that, but this type of Mariology uh, you know really starts to develop and you know come about because of um, her unique place in history in the Lord coming through her. And so that's why, you know, well, you know, how could Jesus be sinless if his mom was a sinner? Well, we talked about that and, you know, uh, she was immaculately conceived. Now that didn't come out in the gospels. That was obviously a later addition. It was, it was a later dogma that came out after the, these uh, Gnostic writings took place. I would have to look back and find out where exactly, you know, that that first began uh, to be articulated. But um, yeah, people were looking at her as the queen of heaven. Like you could go through her to get to her son. That was, you know, in in a magisterial understanding that that makes sense. And so they started putting all this emphasis on her. Well, then she must have been something special. She must have done this. And when we go through all. Um, these gospels, you start to see that becoming more and more prominent. And it gets to the point where at the end of the Gnostic gospels, even before um, you know, the final version of the gospel of Thomas is written, uh, and I'm, I'm just going to say final in quotes here, you know, um, that that's found in the Nag Hammadi library. And there's only one copy of it and it, it has holes in it. And people aren't really sure what the end of it says. Um, the beginning of it, they're pretty um, confident in the direction that it may have been going because of it being taken from so many other um, stories, so many other of these um, pseudepigraphal works and uh, Gnostic works that... Um, you know, they can say, oh, this was the intent of this story or this section or whatever, where, you know, um, in, in in the Nag Hammadi uh, Gospel of Thomas um, that was made popular, there are holes in it where, you know, Jesus would kiss Mary Magdalene on the and then there's a blank there. They, they don't know what it says. It's It has a hole in it because there's only one copy. And of course, there's no variance. So, you know. So you would have to say, well, what was it on the forehead? Was it on the mouth? Was it on like, you know, what was it? But whatever it was, of course, you know, the um, the the disciples at the time, you know, in that story, they were jealous. And he was like, why are you jealous of her? You know, because I'm spending so much time with her. Don't you know that, you know, if she wishes to be saved, she should pray uh, to become male so that she may have a living soul. Like, you know, it, you want to talk about, and what, this is another thing that's funny. You want to talk about some hardcore misogyny. Um this the, the Gnostic Gospels uh, will have that because of the Gnostic tendencies and um, the way that they the way that women and children were viewed that like bled through all of this stuff that you know it it, it would be difficult to hear you know anybody who is anti Christian and very pro woman and trying to attack the Bible and saying why aren't these other books in there if they read them they would say you know what I'm not even going to make the suggestion that those be in there because if they were 
it would be, you know, it, it's so bad in the way that they speak about women. I mean, in, in the New Testament, you have women spoken of very positively. Uh, even, you know, I know people are thinking, why, what do you mean they're speaking of positively? It says that, you know, they shouldn't speak in church and they should. Okay, look, what's going on in Corinthians is a, a different understanding than what you're talking about. But the main thrust of it is that Paul is saying that they should be taught. They should learn. They should be educated. Women should be educated. Um, praises are given to um, Timothy's uh, mother and grandmother for you know teaching him, for training him. That women are giving you know positions in power. Women are the ones that are funding Paul's missionary journeys. The um the the entire Bible is extremely pro woman. Whenever you understand the world culture of the time, and you look at you know what's going on and what they're doing, and the the laws that are put in place to protect them, it's it, it is the exact opposite of what people claim that it is with this whole like you know uh, anti woman uh, sentiments in it and stuff. There and if we ever get into uh, humanity uh, anthropology uh, within. Um, within scripture and within theology. And we talk about the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism and how that, you know, relates in the church and how that relates in scripture that will get you know fleshed out a little bit more. But, um, this is a way that you can see that, Hey, the Gnostics, um, are writing this stuff and they're really getting into it. So, we're going to start with the gospel of pseudo Matthew here and right from the beginning. Okay. Right off the bat with, with this um, thing, it, it says, and this is, this is in it. This isn't something that was, you know, like, like added to it's an introduction that is, you know, starts the gospel of pseudo Matthew. And it says here beginneth the book of the birth of um, the blessed Mary and the infancy of the savior written in Hebrew by the blessed evangelist Matthew and translated into Latin by the blessed presbyter Jerome. Okay. So what you, what it's claiming is that, um, that Matthew, the evangelist wrote this in Hebrew. And some people think that the gospel of Matthew originally was written in Hebrew and, you know, then it was translated to Greek or he rewrote it in the Greek or whatever. I, I reject that. I think that it was written in Greek. I have no reason to think that it was um, written in Hebrew. Uh, I don't think that uh, that that really follows suit. It could have been, but it's highly speculative uh, that, that it was, in my opinion. So... And it, and to the fact that the way this gospel starts out, Matthew's gospel doesn't start out like that. I mean, he's not, you know, naming himself. He's not uh, doing anything. It's 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 not that. So obviously, this is taken from translated from Jerome's Latin. Okay, and you know, and and it's given this this opening. So let's say that okay. Take that out and say, okay, that wasn't original to the gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, all right? So, it would start out with um, the birth of the Virgin Mary and the, na- and the nativity of the infancy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we find in the apocryphal books, but considering that in them, uh, many things contrary to our faith are written, we have believed that they ought to be rejected, least perchance we should transfer the joy of Christ to Antichrist. Okay, so even the copies that we have of this gospel say 
this isn't this isn't uh, orthodox. This is not Christianity. This is something that we have um, that is you know a story that is written, but it has no no credence whatsoever. So if um, you know, Jerome is is writing this, and and um, Jerome is the one who. Uh, translated the uh the bible into latin for which was the common vernacular in the um in the fifth century uh commissioned by um uh, pope gregory pope gregory the great again um so you know he translated the latin vulgate so they are also attributing this to him as well and the latin vulgate at the time was like the king james version of the bible for um you know, many uh, Christians in, in Protestant circles today and, um, you know, an English version that was very popular in the, you know, 18th century also. So, you know, you go back to like when it was translated in the 16th century to, you know, the, let's say roughly 20th century, 19th century, well, 19th century, 20th century, when you started getting different, different versions because of uh, manuscript evidence and uh, different reasonings behind it but it, but the latin vulgate was like the bible translation for a thousand years that's a long time people had a very strong emotional attachment to that particular translation and that's why the the mass Roman Catholic Mass is in Latin. I mean, there's a a strong history there, and you know, reasoning for it. But eventually, and people didn't speak Latin. They didn't they didn't read it. it you know, and the, and you know, that's why it wasn't in the common vernacular. And that's what made when we talked about, um, you know, the uh, before the Reformation occurred in um, in the 16th century. Why in the 13th century, or well, in the 14th century and 15th century, you had the um, the, the humanists that were um, such powerful preachers because they would preach in the tongue of the people. They would teach in the tongue of the people. They weren't teaching in Latin and they were doing it very passionately and, you know, very, very expressive, more, you know, I, I would suppose more like modern day preaching than a, you know, like, like a, a liturgical homily that just might be, you know, read or dictated or something. They're, you know, and I, I talked about like the rock star preachers and, you know, people would be cheering them on. Woo-hoo, yeah. You know, you, you rock the sex Sunday in ordinary time and you know, all that stuff. But, um, you know, so right off the bat, we're looking at this saying, okay, you know, if you were going to go through and reject books, this, you would read that and say, okay, well, this book is rejected because another, um, component of, uh, why a book was accepted as the as gospel was um, that Christianity, the majority of the Christian community, accepted it as the word of God. They saw it and said and read it and said, "Yes, we've been using this for worship. This we believe this to be the word of God. This this speaks to us." Nobody's saying that about this. Nobody's saying that about any of these Gnostic Gospels. So, I mean, so far the criteria that, you know, I've been talking about, and I'll talk about later again, is, you know, it it had to have an early date. Uh, It had to be written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle uh, under the apostle's authority. And it, um, it had to have been accepted by 
the Christian community. If you have a book where the Christian community has never heard of it for hundreds of years, and then you get one and you say, yeah, this is it, they, they would reject it. I mean, over time, that's kind of how the canon closed. And, you know, it... The, all all that happened with with the councils in you know discussing you know the the New Testament canon uh, was them kind of putting a rubber stamp on what everybody believed and said no everybody's always accepted these books and they talked about a, a few other ones but um, yeah we'll get into that later which which books were um, contenders actually for the New Testament that didn't make it in and we'll we'll talk about why we'll, we'll go over those ones because they are good books they are good books to read but um the only reason that they are even mentioned in the list with the other ones is to say that they were mentioned specifically to be rejected because a lot of people were using them but not everybody was and it doesn't it didn't follow suit with the majority of christianity and and we'll, we'll talk about what they were and uh, some may be surprising to you actually um so you know so that's how the gospel of pseudo matthew is starting out okay now it's going through and it's you know rehashing a lot of um the proto-evangelium of james which started out with jesus grandparents on his mother's side mary's mother and father and it's pretty much telling that story but it's adding you know more stuff in there and it's it's getting more and more detailed it's making it a a better story um and one of the things that's that's kind of interesting is that uh, Mary, when she was born, she um, would say, you know, if anyone if anyone would greet her, if anyone would salute her, you know, she would um, answer them by saying, "Thanks be to God." And it says, and from her custom, that first began men saying, thanks be to God, when they saluted each other. So if you've ever been in a church where they read the, the, the gospel, they read the Bible, and they say, this is the word of the Lord, everyone responds, thanks be to God. They're saying, hey, you know this liturgical edition that we do in church all the time? Yeah, that was started by Mary. Here it is, Gospel Pseudo-Matthew. That's another indication that this is most definitely a later book than the other ones because it's adding in liturgical um, structure into the story. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so we were... You know, we, we talked about what Jesus' birth was like and how, you know, from the uh, Proto-Evangelium of James and how, you know, it wasn't normal, like light was shining out and there was so much light that you couldn't see, but then eventually the light got concentrated right in between Mary's legs and once it did, there was Jesus. Okay, he was he was born. And, you know, the clouds swirling around and, you know, all this, all this, you know, crazy stuff. And if you've ever, um, like read like the, the life of Buddha or the study, uh, you know, or the, the story of about the birth of Buddha and how 
you know, there was no pain for his mom and, um, you know, all these, you know, all the, the stars aligned and, you know, all the animals and everything was just, you know, perfect. And, you know, it was actually pleasurable for his mom and like all this stuff. Um, you know, you can start to see that creeping in. And, you know, when people say that, oh, well, you know, the story of Jesus is just stolen from a bunch of other, um, you know, uh, 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 stories from other religions in ancient times and everything. That's a hard pill to swallow unless you're including the Gnostic Gospels. Then you can start saying, well, yeah, you know, if it happened for them, it must have happened for our Lord. So some of the things that... Um, uh, that that they embellished on was okay. Not only was Jesus born, but you remember when um, Mary was six months old. You know, she walked seven steps, and they marveled at it. Wow, a six-month-old watching seven steps. Well, not to be outdone in the Gospel of Pseudo Matthew. As soon as Jesus was born, he stood to his feet, and the angels adored him. So, newborn kid. Most newborns can't hold their head up. Well, guess what? Jesus could stand up as soon as he was born. He was standing up and walking around. So, had to top Mary on that one. You got to make sure that you have that in there. So, um, same thing happened. It was the same type of story. Um, this time, uh, you have the um, two women. Okay, Joseph um, you know, goes and finds uh, the midwife, and he brings two midwives. Okay, he finds two in this one, um, and they, they name uh, Zolome or Zolomi and, uh, Salome. All right. So we know Salome because she was in the last one, but now, you know, the other girl got the, got a name and, you know, Salome said, Hey, this is fantastic. Look, a, a virgin has given birth and I can't believe that her breasts are full of milk and she gave birth and yet she's still a virgin. And there was no spilling of blood at his birth. There was no pain in bringing him forth. I mean, everything is just like, you know, he just slipped out, popped out. I don't know. Just came to be like right there. And, um, and of course, you know, uh, uh, Zelomi or Zolomi or Z-E-L-O-M-I. And there's different spellings or Z-E-L-E-M-I also. It just, again, depends on the, the translators and the translation of it. Um, but, um, you know, she didn't believe, okay? Um, she, she said, yeah, I don't believe. So this, this again shows the unbelief. And what happened to her last time? Yeah, her hand burned off. So here she goes in. And, you know, she says, I'm going to do it. And when she had withdrawn her hand from handling her, it dried up. And through excess of pain, she began to weep bitterly and in great distress, crying out and saying, Oh, Lord, thou knowest that I have always feared thee and without. Okay, again, you know, Eastern mindset. You know, and, you know, so so it's kind of saying when you're reading this, hey, if you don't believe that there was a virgin birth, well, then you know, look at the other people that didn't believe and they, you know, God showed them and they were tortured for their unbelief and their hands were shriveling up and all this stuff. But then, you know, in this one, a, um, an angel, you know, appears and says, uh, go you know, to the child, adore him and touch him with your hand and it'll be healed. And so, yeah, they did. So she did, and that's it. Um, if if you ever read um, Justin Martyr and any of his works, he Justin Martyr is a philosopher in the um, second century, and he was converted to Christianity. And in his arguments with um, with unbelievers who would uh, you know write and mock the um, virgin 
narrative with which in within the gospel stories he would say wait a minute i've read what you guys believe i know you know other religions what you guys believe you guys believe in stuff just as crazy if not crazier than this and you're saying you reject it because of this but you've already accepted that not really proving it that it happened but just saying why are you so you know resistant to this type of thing you know, a, a virgin conceiving and having a child whenever you believe, you know, people are impregnated by snakes and, you know, you have all, all sorts of other things that are that are happening. Um, it's just kind of a way to say that, you know, uh, hey, what you believe is just as crazy. So, you know, you can let this slide in a way. I don't think it's the best argument, but it's an argument and it exists. So anyways, um, let's uh, skip through here. Okay. Um, so then what you have is as you know Jesus is born all of a sudden he becomes like if you've ever seen if you ever read the comic book or seen the movie of Green Lantern okay and you know the guy gets the magic lantern ring and now all of a sudden you know he is able to do anything that he can think of and anything that happens because of this ring he has this ring he now has this power you know to yeah, to do all these like uh, sci-fi type things, you know, create cars out of thin air and you know just do all this stuff. And you know, it's almost it's it's a magic ring. It's basically what it is. Well, this is sort of the same thing. Mary now has this magic ring called Jesus, where all of a sudden, like all of these you know super things start happening, and she's in control of this uh, sort of magic ring. And there's a reason why I'm using this type of superhero analogy, and we'll you'll see why um, later on. If you've, I mean, if you like, you know, um, superhero movies and, and comic book movies and stuff, you'll, you'll understand some of this stuff. You'll be like, are you serious? Like, huh. so anyways, um, in, uh, in chapter 18 of the gospel pseudo Matthew, um, what you have is the beginning of this series of people getting helped, uh, miraculously. And so, one of the things is is that um, that they're 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 walking along, and you know they they come to this cave, and they sit down, and um, and there was Joseph, his three boys, with Mary, a girl, going on a journey with them, and lo, uh, there came forth from the cave many dragons. Okay, so you have all these dragging dragons coming out. And when the children saw them, they cried out in terror. Jesus went down from the bosom of his mother. Remember, just born. Went down from the... Well, he's a little bit older now, but you know. Um, but he went down and stood on his feet before the dragons. And they all adored Jesus and then went away. And then they said that this is fulfilled, you know, by by the prophet, Um you know, by a prophet, which said that, you know, from the Lord, from the earth, ye dragons, ye dragons, uh, all ye deeps, and the young Jesus walking before them commanded them not to hurt, uh, to hurt no man. But Mary and Joseph were very much afraid, lest the child should be hurt by the dragons. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and do not consider me to be a little child, for I am always, for I am and always have been perfect. And all the beasts of the forest um, must needs to be tamed before me. So, 
Again, this and and this concept of Jesus knowing that who he is and the power that he has and and what his point is is a Christological understanding called Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is the view that Jesus is a God in a bod. He has a human body but a God mind. And so that's why he knew all these things, he could think all these things, he could do all these things. And this was a uh, this was something that was rejected again at the um, Council of Constant or the Chalcedonian uh, Council, uh, Council of Chalcedon in the, I want to say, 5th century. Because um, they said, no, he had a reasonable mind, soul, and body in order to fully represent us. So um, this was either... This shows that it was either written before that council or maybe slightly after in order to push it. I think that um, it was written uh, around the time of the council because also in that council, they talk about Mary being theotokos, which um, which is a, a term for or theotokos, depending on, I think it's pronounced theotokos, which is the God bearer. And they wanted, they were like, no, let's name, let's not call her the God bearer. Let's call her the, the man bearer, anthropotokos, you know, or the Christ bearer, Christopotokos. Anyways, I'm tripping over my words here. Or the Christ bearer. And this is what got uh, Nestorius in trouble and why Nestorianism was condemned. So you had all these different Christological heresies condemned at the same time that Mary was called the mother of God. And the whole point was to talk about the humanity of Christ, not elevate Mary. But if elevation of Mary was the indirect outcome of this, well, then you can understand um, why Mariology is getting so prominent. So, I would say around that time is when we would get this whole, you know, pseudo-Matthew uh, comprehension. But, um, you know, so you have now animals like obeying Jesus and nobody, nothing's hurting them. And, um, you know, they're walking along and they start to get fatigued. So, you know, uh, Mary says to Joseph, let me rest a little under the shade of this tree. And Joseph therefore made haste and, uh, you know, set everything up. And she was sitting there and she looked up and saw that there was fruit in the tree and said to Joseph, I wish it were possible to get some of that fruit from this, from this palm. Joseph said to her, I, I wonder that thou sayest with whom thou seest this high, how high this tree. And the, yeah, this is really high. I mean, nobody can, nobody can get up there. We don't have a ladder with us. We're just, we're just kind of traveling here. And so, um, Jesus, you know, was like, Hey, you know what? Um, I'll just tell the tree to bend over. And so the tree bends over, it bends down and, um, just, you know, just hangs over so everybody can get the fruit and they sit there and eat and it's hanging over them and it comes down and it bows down to the feet of Mary. Okay. So now not only are dragons and animals, you know, obeying Christ, but even trees are bowing down and, and bowing down to mother the or to Mary the mother of God. Okay, so even Mary in a way is being worshipped by the earth and by everything's in it. And then it, you know it was down and it 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 hid them and you know it let waters flow from it. Um, so that, you know, so that they could be uh, refreshed, a, a vein from the tree opened up and they were all able to drink and, you know, eat from the fruit. And it was, it was cool and it was clear and it was sparkling water that was coming from this, uh, from this palm tree. And then um, when they had had enough and they satisfied their beats and everything else, um, and it was all good, Jesus said to him, okay, you can go back and the tree rose back up and 
you know, stood upright again. So uh, this is the type of stories that you're getting in here. All right. So they continue on and, you know, everything is in the command of it. And then eventually you start to get to these points where, um, you know, people are, are in trouble and, you know, they need something. So, um, uh, you know, they, they start coming to them for help, um, you know, and Jesus is able to help them, you know, in, in a way. But before this happens, Jesus has to learn that it's better to help people than to hurt people, of course. So this is when it starts to move into the narrative of Jesus killing everybody. If, if you remember from um, the Proto-Evangelium of James, you had that whole section of Jesus you know, killing children and stuff. Well, we have to, of course, add that in. So starting in, um, you know, chapter 26 here, you have that, um, and, and the same like typical stories of, you know, when he was, uh, four years old and the Sabbath day he was playing and they said, Hey, he shouldn't be doing that. You know, he shouldn't be like playing and building stuff because it's the Sabbath day. So a child, you know, um, went over to him and, uh, you know, just messed up his little sandcastle, which he was collecting water in and you know, stuff like that and playing. And, and so Jesus, um, you know, called him a, a child of Satan, a son of Satan. And you destroy, uh, what I have made. And immediately the child who did this died. Um, and you know, and then, um, you know, people were you know, mad about that and say he deserved death because he scattered the works that I had made and, you know, all that stuff. And, um, then he had been dead, um, because they were like, yeah, you can't do that to him. And so Jesus said, all right, fine. And, you know, he resurrected him and stuff. And, you know, then they went away and, um, Jesus, you know, by the word of his power that brought the water back into the pools of the aqueduct, which he made. So, you know, all the stuff he was making with his hand and the kid destroyed after raising from the dead. So fine, I'll put it back to how it was and, you know, blinked his eyes or whatever. And everything kind of went back to where it was and it was fine. But then again, you have, um, you know, another one where, um, I mean, it's just, it's just these same stories over and over again from the other one, but just with a little bit more embellishment that, you know, somebody bumps into him. So he kills them, you know, a kid bumps into them and kills them and his parents, you know, yell at Joseph about it. And so he, you know, gets all upset, you know, the, all of that stuff that, that was happening in, in the other ones. Now, basically with this story of him, you know, killing people, as you read through the Gnostic Gospels, each one, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, they the parents in one of them, you know, not only do they complain about Jesus having done this, but after they do, Jesus strikes them blind. So first he kills their kid, and then because they complain and want him to go away because, you know, he's doing all these wicked things, he makes them blind for grieving for their child. Um, so let's, let's skip ahead to the magical... Uh, bathwater of Jesus. There started to, to develop this idea that um, Jesus's bathwater had magical powers, and you know, whenever somebody would come to Mary and say, you know, I, I need your help, um, you know, Jesus, would, she would give Jesus a bath. And, um, Jesus, his bath water would then be sprinkled over them and they would be healed. I mean, it's just like one thing after another that, that, you know, heals them, that heals them, that heals them. And this is, if you went through the, um, the theology pit series on, uh, salvation that we did, and we talked about the, um, 
what was what was called this um, the satisfaction view of the atonement or the uh, sacramental view of the atonement that uh, God's grace is imputed um, or is infused within you that it's it's poured into you and that the way that you got this grace was through the sacraments of the church and one of those sacraments is baptism baptism is to wash away original sin and you know to be cleansing and, and healing. And so it, it, it's healing you. Something is being poured into you that makes you savable. And, you know, as you continue to get more and more of this stuff, you become more and more Christ-like. Um, you know, this is uh, called... Um, uh, oh, wow, the, the words are escaping me right now. But anyways, you're just becoming more and more Christ-like. The words will come to me you know, later on as I'm, as I'm talking. I'll just break in with it. Um, but anyways, um, the, the sacraments are seen as having these, um, these, these certain regenerative powers. Okay. Uh, especially, you know, baptism and the Lord's supper are two really, really big ones. So you start moving into this whole baptism understanding of the waters of baptism are miraculously changed. Probably, you know, I'm assuming the ex operato by the works performed, uh, just like the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. You have, um, you know, this thing. Now, what's going on in these infancy narratives is eventually all of these people that are getting healed and all these kids that are getting healed um, that's that's been occurring by the magic bathwater and by, you know, Jesus doing all this. I shouldn't say magic bathwater, but anyways, magic bathwater is what it is. They eventually become you know, apostles later on in, in Christ's life. Like you have a, you know, a, a boy um, that is, you know, being uh, tormented and, you know all this, uh, you know, all this, all these, all, all these problems that are uh, taking place. I mean, you have a story of a woman who um, had, you know, uh, twins, and one of them died, and you know she she goes to Mary and you know asks for help, and um, and, and in all these narratives, as you're getting through this, I'm taking this out of the the infancy of the Savior is is what it's called. It's um, uh, after what's called the the Latin form of the Gospel of Thomas, and then there's a, a Greek form, a second Greek form of, of Thomas, history of the carpenter. I'm really just kind of putting all of these together for you into one story because for the sake of time. I mean, if I went through each individual one, it'd be so long. But anyways, you know, so she goes and, um, you know, Jesus like goes to the boy and, um, you know, tells him to open his eyes and, you know, calling on him with a loud voice and he wakes up and, you know, he comes back to life and everything. And it, it says here, then his mother said, Oh, Lady Mary, now I know that the power of God dwelleth in thee so that thy son heals those that partake of the same nature with himself as soon as they touched his clothes. So they're going now, and you have this type of Marian worship. Now, by the way, then continues on to say, and this boy that was healed is the one who in the gospel is called Bartholomew. So one of his, so, you know, he's meeting all of his, you know, the majority of his disciples as a child and healing them and, you know, putting special blessings on. But here's, here's an interesting story that I, I want to talk about that's, that's in here. There's two stories I want to get to. We have about 10 minutes left and I want to, I want to tell these two stories for these, this infancy narrative that's happening. You have a story of um, a man who has two wives and both the wives have children and, and they each have a son and their sons get sick. Okay. The one goes to Mary. 
okay, and and says to her, you know, I need help. My son is sick. So she gives um, Jesus a bath, and then um, gives gives them the water and and sprinkles the water on the child. Okay, and the child then um, the illness leaves him. And he doesn't die. But the other woman who didn't go to Mary, uh, her child dies. So you need to go to Mary in order to get a blessing, get a healing. And so um, you know, the two women are then working and, and you know, the one woman is very jealous of the other woman because, you know, her son lived while, you know, uh, the other one, her, her son died. So the woman whose uh, son died, she eventually starts hating this child. And when the woman is out um, and they're getting ready to bake bread and they have the oven real hot, she picks up her, her baby and throws it into the fire. Okay. And then, and then leaves, you know, cause now neither one of them have a, a child. Like, you know, she just burned him to death. So when the mom comes home, you know, she finds the baby in the oven just they're laughing and having a good time and playing and the oven is ice cold, you know, and so she takes them out and it's like, it's, it's miraculous. This kid is miraculously being protected. Um, and she even says, you know, why didn't you take him to, uh, to marry if, you know, you, you know, if you wanted your child to live, I don't, I don't get it and stuff. Well, she's just, you know, because you have the two women and, I don't want to get into it now, but there's this whole understanding of two women, slave woman, free woman, like, you know, idea of this, there's a theme in the, in the Bible. If, if, if you understand that theme of the, the separation of the two people. And so, um, this is her son's Cleopas. So, um, you know, so then like, you know, there's another time where he's like playing around the well and the woman sees him and she grabs him and she throws him down the well and, you know, and you know, to, to drown him or whatever and leaves. And when some guys come to, you know, get some water, they see this baby down there walking around on the water. And so they pull him up and they bring him back. And, you know, the mom's like, oh man, she tried to do it again. And, you know, the kid was just sitting on the surface of the water and walking around and stuff like that. So she's crying. She goes to Mary and she's like, listen, she's trying to constantly kill my, uh, kill my kid and everything. And, and Mary pretty much is almost like the godfather at this time. Like, you know, hey, what do I got to do to help you out here? You know, I mean, it's just, she's like, hey, this woman's going to you know kill my son, uh, you know, and we believe on you. And Lady Mary says, okay, God will avenge thee upon her. Um, thereafter, when her rival went to the well to draw water, her feet got entangled in the rope and she fell in the well. And some and came to draw out, draw her out, but they found her skull fractured and her bones broken, and she died a miserable death. And in her came to pass the saying, "They that have dug a deep well, but have fallen into the pit which they had prepared." So, bumped her off pretty much. Okay. Anyways, here's one that is now. If you were saying, "Well, hey, you know, maybe this is the type of stuff that you see in scripture." I mean, hey, I mean, it's it's all full of like you know stuff like this, people being in furnaces and not being hurt and everything. All right, if this doesn't change your opinion of how far these gospels go, this next story, I really don't know what will. But this is all encompassed and is the type of stuff that is being uh, uh, put forth. So there was a young woman who was uh, afflicted by Satan, and she was accursed and wretched, and he would appear to her in the form of a dragon and prepare to swallow her. And he also sucked out all of her blood so that she was left like a corpse. And as often as he came to her with her hands clasped over her head, she would cry out, woe is me, nobody is here to free me. And everyone, of course, was scared because this giant dragon is coming to do this, okay? So, um, 
finally a woman goes to Mary and is weeping and saying, Oh, a lady, um, you know, said that sorrowful and weeping woman, this is my daughter. The chief's daughter answered, keep my secret. I confess that, you know, I was formerly a leper, but now Lady Mary, the mother of Jesus has healed me. So they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, you healed this woman. Can you heal my, uh, can you help my daughter also? Because she's being totally, you know, afflicted here. And she says, um, fear not. I, I have an idea. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to give Jesus a bath, okay? And we are going to take his bath water and you're going to pour it over her daughter and it's going to heal her of any afflictions that she has. And then you're going to take his swaddling cloth, okay? Some of his clothes, his diaper, more than likely it seems, all right? And whenever you see him, whenever you see, you know, this um, uh, Satan come, this dragon come at her, she's to take this cloth and she is to, you know, hold it up and put it over her head, okay? So, you know, Satan uh, appears and, you know, to terrorize her and the girl shuddered because she was in fear. But as soon as she took out the cloth and placed it on her head and covered her eyes with it, flames and live coals began to dart forth from it and being cast upon the dragon. Yeah, you heard that right. She puts it on her head and flames and coals are shooting out of it. Like like some like sci-fi thing, like some Marvel comics thing. You have this dragon appearing and flames are shooting out and all of this stuff is is occurring. And you know, it scream the dragon screams and says, Oh, you know, Lord Jesus, what have you to do with me? And it turns and fears and runs and never comes back again. Okay. So you have you know, all of this stuff you know, that, that's, that's that's taking place, like, you know, Satan turning into a dog. Um, there are people that are turned into animals. And, you know, once they are um, you know, sprinkled with, um, you know, Jesus's uh, bath water, they're, they're turned back into humans. Or, you know, you have one where, you know, there was a man who was turned into a donkey um, by a, a witch or sorcery or some type of curse, and you know, Mary goes to it with Jesus and puts Jesus on his back, and he becomes a man again. Or there are a bunch of um, kids playing, you know, young goats playing and stuff, and they said, "Oh, they used to be children." Jesus goes to them and turns them back into children. Okay, um, you know, Joseph is doing carpentry and he's making something for someone, but the wood is not quite long enough. He has one piece that isn't long enough. And he's lamenting and smoting his breast and, and everything. And, you know, so Jesus says, hey, Joseph, don't worry. And grabs a hold of, they grab a hold of the wood and they pull and the wood pulls into what they need. Um, you know, there's one where he actually builds the thing and, um, you know, the, the chair, but it's not big enough and the people don't want to pay him. And they're like, oh, no. And Jesus, don't worry. You grab one side, I'll grab the other. They pull it and they make it, you know as long as it needs to be, the wood extends. You have constantly these stories. Now, eventually in the story, it evolves that, you know, it says Jesus, that Joseph is a bad carpenter. It starts out that he's a pretty good carpenter. It was just the wood was cut wrong. But then eventually, you know, by the time you get to the end of all of these things, it's coming right out and it's saying that, you know what? Joseph was a bad carpenter. And it's just incredible, like how far all this stuff is going. It's almost like Jesus is like this, this wunderkind, this super child. I mean, it's like Superman when he was a boy, except he could do all this stuff. It's all these superpowers, which is totally different than the historical narrative that you see. 
I mean, we're at the end of this, and there are a lot more Gnostic Gospels. Maybe I'll touch on the Gospel of Peter. Uh, maybe I'll get more into the Gospel of Thomas and kind of give a review of that. But I hope you can see the point that this is nothing like anything you read in the Old or New Testament. It's obvious why it didn't belong. Hey, you can visit me, samsonstick.com. Check us out, The Theology Pit, on Facebook, or email me, samson at samsonstick.com. It's now time to close down the pit. Thank you.